The Biden administration says passengers should be compensated for their inconvenience when flight delays and cancellations are within the airline's control. Across the sector, it's clear that they need to do better, and uh, that's exactly what this is pushing them to do. It's Monday, May 8th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. We'll hear about the proposed new federal rules coming up. Also, new research finds black Americans are audited more often than other taxpayers, and the practice generates less money for the government than a more equitable one would. Plus, Choice was supposed to save people money on their electric bills, but a system that's been around for decades in Massachusetts has cost customers more. What these companies do is even if they offer a lower price to start with, they jack up their price later down the line. And low-income residents are harmed the most. It's 401. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Jury deliberations are expected to begin tomorrow in former President Donald Trump's trial for battery and defamation. During closing arguments today in New York, the attorney for Trump's accuser, columnist E. Jean Carroll, reminded jurors of a 2005 Access Hollywood recording in which Trump is heard bragging about sexual assault, saying, when you're a star, they let you do it. Carroll's attorney says that is what happened to her client in a department store dressing room in the mid-1990s. Trump's attorney argued the case is an affront to justice. Trump denies ever having any contact with Carroll. He has not appeared in court and has opted not to testify in his own defense. Police in Brownsville, Texas say the driver of an SUV that crashed into a crowd of people outside a migrant shelter has been charged with manslaughter. NPR's Joel Rose reports eight people were killed, 10 others were injured. Authorities identified the driver as 34-year-old George Alvarez of Brownsville. Police Chief Felix Sauceda says Alvarez has been charged with eight counts of manslaughter and 10 counts of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. The SUV ran a red light, lost control, flipped on its side, and struck a total of 18 individuals. Police say Alvarez tried to flee, but was held down by several people at the scene. Authorities are still investigating whether the crash was intentional. The victims were waiting for a bus outside a shelter for migrants and the unhoused. The shelter's director says all of the deceased were asylum seekers. Joel Rose, NPR News. An investigation is also underway into a mass shooting in Allen, Texas, over the weekend that claimed at least eight lives at a mall. Rising number of mass shootings in America is prompting more calls for gun control, including in Austin, Texas, today. Gun Violence Archive reports 202 mass shootings since the start of the year. President Biden has announced a new rule that would require U.S. airlines to compensate passengers for significant flight delays or cancellations when the carriers are responsible. NPR's Windsor Johnson has details. President Biden says getting American air travelers a, quote, better deal will continue to be a top priority for the administration. Historically, when delays and cancellations are the airline's fault, the law has only required airlines to refund customers the price of their flight ticket but not the cost of meals or hotels or transportation when you get left in limbo. The White House has already proposed new rules to refund fees for bags that are significantly delayed and refunds for services like onboard Wi-Fi that don't work. Some airlines have raised questions about whether the Department of Transportation has the legal authority to mandate compensation for delays. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed down 55 points, ending the day at 33,618. From Washington, this is NPR News.
And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The mayor of Marlboro says things went pretty smoothly at city schools today despite a strike by school bus drivers. Mayor Arthur Vigent says student attendance was 10 to 15 percent lower than a typical day. He also points out it's MCAS week. He calls the strike very disruptive to students' education. We're looking out for the best interest of the kids. That's all. We just want to make sure we get the kids to school safely. Uh, we hope the union gets back to the table and can put this thing behind us. Striking bus drivers and monitors are seeking higher pay from their company, North Reading Transportation. The company settled yesterday with drivers in Framingham to avoid a strike there. A federal lawsuit has been filed in Boston to prevent the executive branch from suspending operations of the federal government if the nation's debt limit is reached. The litigation was filed by the National Association of Government Employees. The union represents nearly 75,000 federal employees. It claims the debt limit statute in its current form is unconstitutional and could lead to illegal furloughs of its members. President Biden and congressional leaders from both parties are set to hold talks tomorrow in an effort to prevent the U.S. government from faulting on its debts for the first time ever. The commission tasked with assessing the state of behavioral health resources in Massachusetts has released its report. In it, the commission recommends to the legislature how to distribute $192 million in federal pandemic recovery funds. Recommendations include funding loan repayment programs and scholarships for people of diverse backgrounds pursuing behavioral health professions and paid training opportunities in the field. Well, we have more gorgeous coming in the weather department this week. Tonight should be clear with a low in the upper 40s. Then tomorrow, sunny again, a little cooler with temps around 60. Wednesday and Thursday, lots of sunshine. We'll see temps on the rise again. The high Wednesday will be in the low 70s, around 80 degrees on Thursday. It's 75 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Northbridge Brass, presenting a patriotic brass concert with BSO and Pops musicians, May 27th and 28th in Boston and Worcester, northbridgebrass.com, and Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. If you have any upcoming travel plans that involve an airplane, you may be holding your breath as you think of all the recent flight delays and cancellations. Millions of Americans have gotten stuck in airports over the past year, and many of them got little or no compensation. Today, President Biden and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg proposed new rules that would require airlines to compensate passengers beyond a ticket refund for what are being called significant controllable delays or cancellations. I spoke with Buttigieg earlier today and asked him about these proposed changes. Under these new rules, what could passengers get in the future that they're not getting now if their flight is delayed or canceled? Well, right now, if your flight gets canceled, you're entitled to a refund of the airfare. But there's nothing requiring airlines to compensate you for uh, the inconvenience and uh, other costs associated with having a major delay or a cancellation that is the fault of the airline. We're proposing requirements that would change that. Uh, This could mean compensation in addition to amenities or refunds for the ticket itself, could include uh, further accommodations if you're uh, delayed or or stuck, and uh, requirements around customer service. 
We've also launched an expanded dashboard at flightrights.gov. This is helping you get a sense of what you can expect from airlines right now, even as we're working to raise the bar on what's going to be required in the future. So going back to compensation, could this mean if you have to get your own hotel, pay for a meal, get a cab or an Uber or Lyft, these could be charged to the airline? That's right. Now, I'll say that we've already seen a number of gains in this regard compared to about a year ago uh, when there were no formal or enforceable agreements around that. We've uh, uh, posted that dashboard and with that transparency uh, came more motivation for airlines to do the right thing. So a number of them have filed customer service plans with us saying that they'll at least take care of a meal or ground transportation uh, or rebooking and we can enforce that. But that's still only based on them making a commitment to do that. We think that the right way forward is to establish requirements across the board so that any passenger flying on an airline in the U.S. knows what they can expect and and knows that the airline can't uh, change the rules on them. Could a passenger get cash, some kind of currency beyond the fare refund? Well, that's exactly what we are uh, uh, looking at proposing here. Uh, Look, there are uh, places where this is already routine. In Europe and Canada, there are rules where uh, uh, if you get severely delayed and it's the airline's fault, you get some kind of cash compensation. Uh, That's the kind of thing that there's been a lot of interest in here in the U.S. and uh, exactly what we want this rule to look at. I assume some airlines count on passengers not knowing their rights, so they might not offer passengers compensation unless the passenger specifically asks for it. Under your new rules, will passengers automatically get compensated or they have to take the initiative? Well, that's part of something that we're uh, working to develop with this rule, which would be new. But I I think that is a a concern. Often we see that airlines will uh, start out by saying, well, uh, we'll we'll give you uh, a few thousand miles. And uh, passengers might not know that, uh, you know, that could only be worth maybe 10 or 20 bucks when, in fact, they're entitled to hundreds uh, if they ask for it. Uh, We want to make that easier. We don't want you to have to fight for it. And that's what this dashboard is about. Uh, We want to make sure that if, if you're getting ready to book a ticket, uh, you know which airlines are going to take care of you in which ways. And after you get that ticket, uh, you know how to uh, uh, how to assert your rights. And I think making more of that automatic is an important part of that. It shouldn't be on you to navigate uh, DOT rules or go through the fine print of customer service uh, agreements in order to get what you are owed as a passenger. The airlines have blamed some of these problems on things like staffing shortages, technology outages, of course, weather. But they've also blamed the FAA for staffing and technical issues. That's an agency under your purview. What have you done, if anything, to try to make improvements to the FAA's operations? Well, even the airline's own industry statistics show that FAA issues and air traffic control is not responsible for most of these delays. But uh, anytime we see an indication that it could be, that's something that's a real concern. And it's why we have been acting both to modernize FAA systems and to hire more air traffic controllers, bringing on 1,500 additional controllers this year. And uh, the president's budget for fiscal year 24 proposes resources to bring in another 1,800 controllers. I do have to say, though, uh, in the midst of this uh, negotiation over the budget, uh, that uh, what House Republicans passed a few days ago would really stop us in our tracks and would actually reduce our ability uh, to staff these air traffic control towers, lead to furloughs at the FAA, even shut some towers down at the exact moment when it's abundantly clear that we need to do more, not less, to support our air traffic control system.
I'm sure you've heard this term revenge travel, people who weren't able to travel during the pandemic making up for lost time. And even more Americans are expected to travel this summer than last summer. How soon do you think people can expect any notable change in that travel experience? Well, last year when we put up the first version of this consumer protection dashboard, we went from none of the airlines formally offering commitments around things like uh, vouchers and and, and rebooking uh, to almost all of them doing it. We saw that change in a matter of days. So we do see that when they have the right incentives, uh, they can respond quickly. But uh, let's be honest here. The system is under a lot of pressure, the entire system. So far this year, performance has been better. The preliminary data show each month's So far this year, cancellation rates below 2%. Uh, That is great news, but we're not out of the woods. It's going to take more work to make sure that there is a good travel summer for passengers and that uh, we're on a good trajectory for the long-term future. Even before the pandemic, many passengers just felt poorly treated by airlines. What does it say to you that it's taken you to push them to try to get this kind of basic customer service? Well, I think uh, at the end of the day, we need to make sure through public policy that uh, these companies, airlines, have the right rules and the right incentive to do the right thing instead of just hoping that they'll do it on their own. Now, I will say not all airlines are alike. You can go to our website and see green check marks and red X's airlines line by airline uh, in terms of what they're going to offer. You know, before COVID, uh, an extraordinary amount of money went to stock buybacks at these airlines. Uh, We're looking to them to invest in their systems, invest in passengers, uh, and where they're not doing the right thing on their own, we're going to continue to use uh, a three-legged stool, uh, enforcement, rules, and transparency uh, to continue pushing things in the right direction. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. In 2016, Elon Musk went on stage at a tech conference and made a bold statement about the self-driving capability of Teslas. Like a Model S and Model X at this point uh, can drive autonomously with greater safety than a person right now. Okay, but now his lawyers are suggesting he might not have said that at all, that it could be a deep fake created by artificial intelligence. NPR's Shannon Bond has more on an emerging challenge for courtrooms and society. The video of Elon Musk at that tech conference has been up on YouTube for nearly seven years. Elon, let me start by saying we're very glad you're here safe and sound. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Uh, of course, I had to... It recently came back in the spotlight as part of a lawsuit brought by the family of a man who died when his Tesla crashed while using the self-driving feature. Tesla's lawyers pushed back. They said Musk is a public figure and therefore a target for deepfakes, audio and video showing him saying things he never did. The judge did not buy it. She said the claim was, quote, deeply troubling and ordered Musk to testify under oath. The episode highlights a risk that's on the minds of many people closely following AI, that as the technology becomes more prevalent, it will become easier to claim that anything is fake. Hani Farid is a digital forensics expert at the University of California, Berkeley. I mean, that's exactly what we were concerned about, that when we enter this age of deep fakes, Anybody can deny reality. And that is the classic liar's dividend. The liar's dividend is a term coined by law professors Bobby Chesney and Danielle Citrin. The idea is, as people become more aware of how easy it is to fake audio and video, bad actors can weaponize that skepticism. All you have to do is cast doubt, right? You don't even have to prove it. You just, you you cast this doubt over it. And because we see so much fake content, you can see why that argument would get traction. 
Musk's legal team isn't the first to suggest that evidence against their client might have been faked using artificial intelligence. Two of the defendants on trial for the January 6th riot tried to claim video showing them at the Capitol could have been deepfakes. Ultimately, both men were found guilty. So far, those seem to have been Hail Mary passes that have not succeeded. Rihanna Pfefferkorn is a researcher at the Stanford Internet Observatory. She says the threat that deepfakes could be offered as evidence is real. But the legal system's existing rules are robust. The courts have built up hundreds of years of resilience against efforts to introduce fake or tampered with evidence, going all the way back to uh, faking somebody's signature on a handwritten document. When it comes to the flip side, suggesting real evidence is fake, ethics rules and lawyers' professional norms have a role to play. But these standards may need to be updated to specifically address what Loyola Law School professor Rebecca Delfino calls the deep fake defense. Right now, it's sort of like the wild, wild west. Well, let's run this up the flagpole and see, see what we can do with it. Even as courts adapt to these challenges, the reverberations from AI fakes will still be felt. If accusations that evidence is deepfaked become more common, juries may come to expect even more proof that evidence is real, running up costs that could shut out people who don't have the resources to hire experts. And whether inside or outside the courtroom, denying that real events actually occurred has corrosive effects, says Hani Farid. Police violence, human rights violations, a politician saying something inappropriate or illegal, suddenly there's no more reality. And that is really worrisome because I don't know how we reason about the world. Today, most of us have in our pockets devices that can record what's happening around us at a moment's notice. What happens when we no longer believe what they see? Shannon Bond, NPR News. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Angie. Angie's list is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for spending part of your afternoon with us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, a formal former Federal Reserve economist explains how a government default would impact everyday life for Americans. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Next Generation, a showcase of student talent and new work by Boston Ballet Principal Kristen Fentroy at Citizens Bank Opera House May 19th, bostonballet.org. And Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. salemstate.edu slash graduate. On Wall Street, the Dow dipped 0.17% today, the S&P inched up 0.05%, and the Nasdaq gained 0.18%. In local business news, average gas prices in Massachusetts are falling. The statewide average for a gallon of gas is $3.46. That's down $0.03 in the past week, but it's still $0.13 higher than a month ago. AAA says the drop this week is due to a volatile oil market and a dip in travel demand that typically occurs before summer arrives. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare in a new food truck available for catering and events. Online booking at lacuchara.com. And Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. 
Coming to City Space on Friday, May 12th at, at 7 p.m., a music festival featuring Lee Zangari, WBUR's Massachusetts favorite from NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It'll be clear tonight and a bit chilly with temps in the mid-40s. Tomorrow through Thursday look mostly sunny, temps around 60 tomorrow, then rising to the upper 70s about 80 degrees by Thursday. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches, with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In a few minutes, we'll remember the life of a groundbreaking black opera singer who overcame racist attacks by opera fans and the media to become a globally recognized sensation. But first, the IRS is expected to respond to disturbing findings this week. Researchers say that African Americans are audited much more than other taxpayers. NPR's Scott Horsley reports. The first time I spoke to William Ayers was about three years ago while researching a story on the IRS. I've been audited at least three times. Ayers lives in Greenville, Mississippi, and only made about $30,000 a year working at a Lazy Boy factory. Nevertheless, he often found himself in the crosshairs of the IRS. Well, I guess I'm just a casualty of being black and poor. Now there's academic research to back that up. Stanford professor Daniel Ho and his colleagues found African Americans are far more likely to be audited by the IRS than other taxpayers. What we found was that the audit rate of black taxpayers was three to five times the rate of audits for non-black taxpayers. Ho says the disparity doesn't appear to be deliberate. The IRS doesn't ask taxpayers about their race, and most of the audits are conducted by mail. But something in the way the agency decides who to audit results in blacks being disproportionately targeted. And the new IRS commissioner, Danny Werfel, who was sworn in just two months ago, has promised to find out why. It's essential that our tax system is fair. I engage with my team on day one to make sure it's a priority to fully understand how do we get to the bottom of it and figure out what we need to do going ahead. Werfel is expected to report his findings to the Senate Finance Committee this week. The IRS process for selecting audit targets is carefully guarded to prevent people from gaming the system. But there are some theories about what's going on. Nina Olson, who is a longtime national taxpayer advocate at the IRS, says the agency often seems more interested in policing people who receive payments from the government, through the earned income tax credit, for example, than finding those who fail to pay what they owe. One thing that has really disturbed me over the years is the sense that somehow a dollar that was improperly paid out was somehow more valuable than a dollar that was not collected from someone who underreported their cash income as a business. You know, it's all a dollar to the public fisc. Researchers found that a narrow focus on tax credits as opposed to unpaid taxes results in a higher rate of audits for African Americans. 
Another theory is that the IRS is looking to boost its batting average, going after people with a high likelihood of even small tax errors, rather than pursuing big tax cheats, which could yield the occasional home run, but also a lot of strikeouts. Wealthy taxpayers with opaque sources of income can hire lawyers and accountants to help them dodge the tax collector. William Ayer says it's no wonder the IRS prefers to come after people like him. Because the folks who owe a lot, if they got money, they're going to fight them. They got the means to fight, whereas people like us, we don't know that we have the means to fight. But soon, the IRS will have the resources to correct that imbalance. Congress has allocated an extra $80 billion for the tax collector over the next decade, with much of that money earmarked for beefed-up tax enforcement. Nina Olson, who now runs the Center for Taxpayer Rights, says that's an opportunity to correct the racial disparity in tax audits, but not if the IRS just puts more money into the same broken system. Before you start hiring scores of new auditors, you need to do your research and train them on the new models before you go out and train them on the old way of doing things. You know, fix it. Stanford's Daniel Ho says the current system is not only unfair to African-American taxpayers, it's also leaving money on the table. He notes that an estimated $500 billion worth of taxes goes uncollected every year. A more effective audit system that sniffs out big tax cheats would not only be more racially equitable, it would also raise more money for the government. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. We bid farewell today to a glorious voice. Grace Bunbury has died at age 86. She was part of the first generation of black female opera stars following Marian Anderson, along with Leontine Price and Jesse Norman. Bunbury was known for her wide range and distinct tone. Brandon Gates has our remembrance. Grace Bunbury always knew she had it. Either you have it or you don't, and and it's not something that you decide upon. I think it decides for you. The St. Louis native explained to NPR in 1990 her fate had already been decided. Initially not interested in opera, but rather classical music, and influenced by seeing Marian Anderson perform, she spent her childhood obsessed with music. I knew I had to be a singer. That was what my life was all about. You see, up to that point, I was a piano student. I had studied piano at age from age of seven until I was 15. But I wanted to definitely, seriously become a singer of classical music. And Bumbry became a serious singer. In 1954, at age 17, she won a radio talent competition and a scholarship to study at a local conservatory. Because of segregation, she was not allowed to take classes with white students, but offered private lessons. Her international debut at the Paris Opera in 1960 was influenced by Jackie Kennedy, Bumbry performed as Amneris in Aida. Her triumph in Paris opened the doors to Bayreuth. There, at the festival, that's the spiritual home of Richard Wagner, Bumbry sang the role of Venus in a production of Tannhäuser in 1961. She was the first black person to sing at Bayreuth. 
casting a black American as Venus instead of a Nordic blonde was met with skepticism and racism from opera purists and the German media. Bumbry ignored the controversy. Her performance was met with a 30-minute standing ovation, necessitating 42 curtain calls. But after great success as a mezzo-soprano, Grace Bumbry shocked the opera world by committing to singing mostly soprano in the 1970s. I probably am the only singer ever in history to have made a career as a leading mezzo-soprano, I mean, really a top career as a mezzo-soprano, and then all of a sudden in midstream to change to soprano. She would toggle between both ranges over the rest of her 60-year career, says music professor Naomi Andre. She sang between roles that one person normally doesn't always sing. And so her voice had this incredible smooth creaminess and strength in places where you wouldn't always expect in the same voice, an incredibly gorgeous sound. That gorgeous sound was a sort of summoning for the next generation of Black singers and performers. For NPR News, I'm Brandon Gates. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Ahead on All Things Considered, if you're thinking about buying electricity from a third-party competitive supplier in Massachusetts, you'll want to hear what that could mean for the prices you pay. We'll have clear skies tonight with temps in the upper 40s, more sunshine tomorrow, and a high around 60 degrees. Right now it's 75 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. SemesterOff.com. And Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. I'm Deepa Fernandez. My mum gave me her fierce yet kind way of standing up against injustice. She had everyone's back, from the supermarket worker to people who might have gone hungry if she didn't bring them a meal. She taught me that we only rise if we all rise together. Thank your mum this Mother's Day with Winston Flowers from WBUR, and you'll support the station that has your back. Choose your perfect gift and save 10% at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden meets with top congressional leaders tomorrow after a recent forecast by the Treasury Department that the U.S. could run short of money to pay its bills as early as June 1st. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and others are expected at the White House tomorrow afternoon. But NPR's Claudia Grisales says both sides remain far apart on the subject of spending cuts. 
This is the first major meeting they're having with Republicans coming in with an opening offer. Biden and McCarthy did meet earlier this year, but the House Republicans had not passed a bill that they say would be the path to lift the debt ceiling, which includes a series of spending cuts. Now, my colleague Asma Khalid spoke to a source familiar with the White House's thinking on all this, and the White House has low expectations for this meeting on Tuesday. Republicans insist any measure to raise the debt limit must also include spending cuts. A new study by the U.S. Census Bureau suggests that the last national headcount missed about one in five residents who are not U.S. citizens. As NPR's Hansi Luong tells us, the findings come after years of concern over interference by the Trump administration that likely discouraged many non-citizens. The Constitution requires a count of every person living in the U.S. for numbers used to reallocate congressional seats and electoral college votes. But a Census Bureau study using government records came up with an estimated tally that was more than 2 percent higher than the 2020 census results. That gap was likely driven by residents who are not U.S. citizens and are missing from the Bureau's count. Close to 20 percent of unauthorized immigrants, green card holders and other non-citizens may not have been tallied. Many of them are likely to live at U.S. addresses with multiple housing units and near the U.S.-Mexico border. The Bureau has been looking into using more government records for the 2030 census. Hanzila Wong, NPR News. You're listening to NPR. Serbia's education minister has resigned following two mass shootings, including an attack on a primary school last week. NPR's Rob Schmitz has more. Education Minister Branko Ruzic was the first Serbian official to resign over the bloodshed, despite widespread calls for more senior officials to step down in the wake of back-to-back shootings that left 17 people dead. Over the weekend, funerals were held for the eight children and one security guard killed in a school shooting at a primary school in the capital, Belgrade, last Wednesday. The assailant was a 13-year-old boy who opened fire on his fellow students. After the second mass shooting Thursday night in villages south of Belgrade, the Serbian government urged citizens to turn in all of their unregistered weapons or run the risk of a prison sentence. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. In Texas, a Republican state lawmaker resigned today ahead of an expected vote to expel him after an investigation found Representative Brian Slayton engaged in inappropriate sexual conduct with a 19-year-old intern. Slayton faced mounting pressure from his own GOP colleagues to resign following a legislative probe that determined he gave the intern and another staffer alcohol at his home and later had sex with the intern after she was intoxicated. Stocks finished mixed today on Wall Street ahead of reports out later this week on jobs and inflation. The Dow lost 55 points, down about two-tenths of a percent. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Massachusetts state leaders don't appear to be too worried about anemic revenue figures for the month of April. The downturn comes as the legislature is in the process of crafting a state budget and a tax relief package. More now from WBUR's Steve Brown. April numbers show the state to be in the red by more than $700 million this fiscal year. But House Speaker Ron Mariano says leaders have anticipated a downslope in the economy. That's why the House spread some of their proposed $1 billion in permanent tax cuts over two years. If you look at the inflation rate that seemed to be no one was able to take, figure out or take control over. And uh, so we wanted to be prudent, and we think we were. 
Senate President Karen Spilka says her chamber remains committed to passing permanent progressive tax relief that is smart and sustainable, but held off predicting a total dollar amount. She says she'll leave that up to the full Senate membership. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. A Woburn cop accused of helping plan a white supremacist rally has been decertified. John Donnelly is the first Massachusetts officer to be decertified under the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act of 2020. Donnelly is accused of helping plan a 2017 white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. He entered a voluntary agreement with the state last month. Woburn placed him on leave back in October as it announced it was launching an investigation into his alleged actions. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey is reintroducing legislation aimed at preventing opioid overdoses. The Stop Fentanyl Overdoses Act would expand testing of deadly additives like fentanyl that can be found mixed in with other opioids. Around 2,000 people a year lose their lives to opioid overdoses in Massachusetts. Markey says more needs to be done. Each one of these lives is a painful reminder that we are still not doing enough. Together, we're going to demand more. We're going to give more resources to empower the communities to be able to care for one another. The bill would also improve access to medicated treatment for opioid use disorder for people who are incarcerated. Some state lawmakers want to reduce the impact a person's zip code has on the cost of auto insurance. They cite data from the Merit Rating Board showing communities with the highest percentage of people of color pay 90 percent more than drivers in the suburbs. Insurance companies claim the newly filed bill would remove one of the only tools they have left to determine rates. They also warn the bill's passage could raise insurance payments for all drivers. It's 436. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, featuring farm-to-table meals to go on Wednesdays and Sundays. View menus and order online at volantefarms.com. And Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com. Well, if you have liked the weather of the last few days, you can look forward to a lot more of it this week. Tonight should be mostly clear with a low in the upper 40s. Tomorrow will be cooler around 60 degrees, but nice and sunny again. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Today in Brownsville, Texas, they're holding vigils for the eight people killed in that city yesterday. The deaths happened when a driver struck a group of people gathered across the street from a migrant shelter. Texas Public Radio's Gage Davila is in Brownsville. Hey there, Gage. Hello. Hey, so I know you've been at one of these vigils today. Tell me about it. Yeah, well, for the Rio Grande Valley residents there and the migrants who are staying at the Osnum Center, they were clearly distraught by what happened yesterday. And just to clarify, that's the shelter across the street from the bus stop where the group was hit. 
And the mood was mournful, but also tense as the shelter has seen a lot of media attention in recent days and is trying to protect the people who are staying there. And that vigil started at the Osnum Center, but then moved across the street to the bus stop where people had left candles and flowers. Um, immigrant advocacy organizations based in the Rio Grande Valley were there talking about the importance of caring for each other, but especially for migrants who are in Brownsville, all of whom have gone through so much hardship to get here. What do we know at this point about the victims? Well, the Osnum Center Executive Director, Victor Maldonado, had described the men as hardworking people who were trying to make better lives for themselves. Um, all of the people who were hit yesterday were men from Venezuela who had stayed overnight at the Osnum Center. Twelve people are in hospitals across the Rio Grande Valley right now, um, all of them in critical condition, some of whom have missing limbs. Um, six people died at the scene, and another two died later at the hospital. What about the driver, Gage? Because there have been a lot of questions as to whether this was an accident or was intentional. What do we know about the driver? Sure. Well, Brownsville Police Chief Felix Sauceda said during a press conference this morning that the subject is George Alvarez, who is a Brownsville resident in his 30s. Um, he has an extensive criminal history, according to Brownsville PD. He's currently held at Brownsville City Jail on a $3.6 million bond, and he's charged with eight counts of manslaughter and 10 counts of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Now, they haven't confirmed whether Alvarez intentionally drove his car into the people, only that he lost control of the Range Rover he was driving and flipped it after hitting them. And video shows that Alvarez did attempt to run from the scene, but bystanders restrained and even started beating him. Okay, so where does the investigation go from here? Well, investigators have not ruled out whether the collision was intentional or not. And I know that claim was circulating in media reports yesterday, but Brownsville PD have made it pretty clear that they do not know for certain if that's the case. Um, Alvarez could see more charges brought against him based on toxicology resorts from screening he took yesterday. And he's apparently been uncooperative with investigators since his arrest, so that could delay more information for some time. And as for the victims, Brownsville PD is working with the Venezuelan government on identifying them and notifying their families. And the Osnum Center is also helping this effort. Texas Public Radio's Gage Davila in Brownsville. Thanks. Thank you. Congress is running out of time to strike a deal on the debt ceiling. Republicans have proposed spending cuts in return for raising the debt limit. President Biden isn't interested. We pay our bills, and we should do so without reckless hostage-taking from some of the mega-Republicans in Congress. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned that if the government doesn't act, the U.S. could default as early as June 1st. This debate over the debt ceiling can sound abstract, the kind of things lawmakers and economists wring their hands about, but that ultimately doesn't mean much for day-to-day -day life. But is that really the case? Former Federal Reserve economist Claudia Sam is here to explain. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. As a very basic starter question, would you explain what it means for a government to default? It would mean the government is unable to pay its bills. And those are lots of different kinds of bills, whether it's paying for the borrowing costs on the federal debt that we've already taken out, or whether it's getting the Social Security checks out, paying the military. It's a cascade of bad events that happen when we default because we're not making good on past promises. And if that's the case, who is affected? People who hold the debt and are waiting for interest payments, who, who else would be conscious of this beyond, say, people not getting Social Security payments? At the end of the day, we're all affected by this. In terms of who 
has a very in the moment uh, effect, it would be people who have those payments from the federal government paying. I think the one that maybe is most disconcerting is the idea that our seniors, often many of them who rely on their social security payments, would stop being able to get those in full. Right, that's a big problem. And that's just one example of many that are problematic. The reality is that we will all be affected, and frankly, children, children's children, because defaulting on the debt, not making those payments on our treasury debts, that is something that could cost the country for a very long time, and it'll become more costly to do future borrowing. And this is where I think it gets very abstract to people. I mean, this federal debt alone is what, more than $30 trillion, which people have trouble understanding, conceptualizing. And if we don't make payments on it, it could result in higher taxes down the line, fewer social services. Is that the kind of thing things you think could be a ripple effect? Think about it that if you don't pay your credit card, like if you miss a payment, often they're going to start charging you more interest in the future because you've shown yeah, you don't always pay pay on time for whatever the reason is. And so then that means that in the future, maybe you do need to use the credit card. Right? Like it just it's something you got to put on the credit card. You're going to pay more for it. And then that means whatever you borrow, you're going to pay the money you borrowed and then all of the interest costs. So that's the piece that may be kind of abstract, but it's real. And it's not something that we don't want to be known as a country that doesn't pay its bills. And that's what a default would mean. What about impact on jobs, on the unemployment rate, on our, our ongoing fight to bring inflation down, any impact there? No impact from a federal debt default would be good. There's a lot of concern. I share this concern that the labor market, which has been strong, which has been the bright light of this recovery, might not be able to buffer this one. We've had higher interest rates. We've had higher inflation. We also have an unemployment rate at a 50-year low. That is not a given that we stay there. A, a default would be very disruptive. And even if it didn't last very long, that could be exactly the kind of event that pushes us into a recession. And then we lose the jobs, and then we have a lot of other problems. There seems to be a note of frustration or exasperation in your voice, maybe that we're coming so close to the edge. How are you feeling about this? We have so much to lose right now. I feel very strongly about the recovery and jobs. Uh, we've closed a lot of the inequities or started to close them in the U.S. economy. This would be a massive unforced policy error, and it could be very disruptive in people's lives. And I don't, I don't see the point. So to me, that is the frustration, and um, I'm not optimistic about it. But I'd love to be proved wrong. Like, we really could get this to the finish line, and, and we really should. That's former Federal Reserve economist Claudia Sam. Thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up by square footage, there is more housing for each car in the United States than there is for each person. We'll talk with the author of the new book, Paved Paradise, that conversation in just a few minutes, right here on All Things Considered from NPR News. 
On the heels of his victory in a copyright lawsuit last week, singer-songwriter Ed Sheeran has a new album out. It's called Subtract, and it is the final installment in his mathematical symbol series that began in 2014. Maura Johnston is a music writer and contributor to Rolling Stone magazine and walked us through a few standout tracks. Been inside for most this year. This is Eyes Closed, the first single from Subtract. Every song reminds me you're gone, and I feel the lump form in my throat. So I'm here alone, just dancing with my eyes closed. Cause everywhere I look, I still see you. He had a really rough time in the beginning of 2022. His friend, the music mogul Jamal Edwards, passed away. His then-pregnant wife discovered a tumor in her body that could not be operated on until the baby that she was carrying was delivered. And he also just descended into depression. And he wrote through all of that. The lyrics of the song really vividly describe depression and the ringer that a person goes through when they experience grief. But I lost more than my friend. I can't help but missing you. This month a little bit different, no one is ever ready. And when it unfolds, you get in a hole. Oh, how can it be this heavy? Everything changes, nothing's the same. Except the truth is now you're gone. And life just goes on. So I'm dancing with my eyes closed. I think it's an indication of the closer to the bone approach that this record has and that Sheeran is taking to his songwriting. Oh, leaves are covered in snow And the water's frozen Oh, I long for you to be the one that I'm holding This is The Hills of Aberfeldy. This is the final track on Subtract. Ed Sheeran's been working on this mathematical symbol project for over a decade now. And this particular song, he had kind of earmarked as the finale of the project from pretty much its beginning. When I'm home, I'll hold you like I'm supposed to. Yet I know that I have never told you. Darling, we could fall in love neath the hills of Aberfeldy. It's a string-accented Celtic folk song. It brings together the traditions that Ed Sheeran's music is rooted in and his pop present. You can kind of see when you hear this song, mist-covered fields rolling over the hills and this kind of grayish morning, and then Ed Sheeran in a parka with a scarf viewing the landscape that's rolling before him and wishing that his love was with him, realizing the depth of his feeling. When I'm home, I'll hold you like I'm supposed to. Four or five years ago, this may have been given, you know, a much more deluxe, blown-out treatment. But here, he just lets the songwriting kind of shine, and it really makes for an affecting last track. That was music writer Maura Johnston. Ed Sheeran's new album, Subtract, is out now. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at 5, Title 42 has allowed U.S. authorities to expel migrants at the border during the pandemic, but it's set to expire this week. We'll look at the impact. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. We'll have clear skies tonight and temps in the upper 40s. More sunshine tomorrow with a high around 60. Then the sun sticks around for Wednesday. We'll have a high in the low 70s that day. Right now it is 74 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. And the Umbrella Arts Center, with the musical adaptation of Alice Walker's Pulitzer-winning classic, The Color Purple starts Friday through June 4th. TheUmbrellaArts.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. My mom gave me the best gifts I could ask for. Talia, Tony, Chris, Bill, Ted, Carla, Stacy, Lisa, my siblings. What did your mom give you? Your siblings, your joy, your curiosity? This Mother's Day, thank your mom with beautiful Winston flowers and send them through WBUR to support storytelling that brings you joy and feeds your curiosity. Choose the perfect gift and save 10% at WBUR.org. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. In Massachusetts, people can choose to buy their electricity from their utility or from a third party known as a competitive supplier. When lawmakers set up this system in the late 90s, the assumption was that a competitive marketplace would result in lower prices for customers. But for the most part, the opposite has happened, and state data show low-income residents are harmed the most. WBUR's Miriam Wasser has our story. Have you ever had someone knock on your door and ask to see your electric bill? They probably told you that you're paying too much and that they have a plan that will give you cheaper power. This happened to Noemi Rodriguez of East Boston a few years ago. Some folks came along offering a plan that was supposedly from the state. She remembers feeling like the $80 a month she was paying Eversource was too much. And one of the salesmen spoke Spanish, so she felt like she could trust him. I thought this was going to benefit me. I was so ignorant. Rodriguez signed a contract, and her bill did go down at first. The problems didn't start until someone from the company called her about renewing her plan. She says she declined. She had seen something on the news about these companies increasing prices unexpectedly. The salesperson on the phone said he'd cancel her plan. But that's not what happened. That's when I started noticing that the bills were too much. It's not entirely clear how, but she ended up paying really high and variable rates. At times, her electric bill was over $200 a month. Last fall, Rodriguez asked a colleague at the environmental nonprofit Greenroots to take a look at her bills. Devin McGoy noticed right away that she had a competitive supplier. And he saw that some months, Rodriguez was paying three times more for electricity than she needed to. I see this problem all the time because energy bills are frankly really hard to decipher. 
electric bills are confusing. And it's easy to miss the fact that you have a competitive supplier because your bill still comes from your utility. Here's how this all works. Your utility typically charges you for two services, the power it buys on your behalf in the wholesale market and the cost of maintaining the wires that bring electricity to your home. If you have a competitive supplier, the only thing that changes is that you have a private company buying electricity for you. You still write your utility one check a month, and it pays your supplier what it's owed. There is one major difference, though. Unlike utilities, competitive suppliers don't need to get their rates approved by the state, so they can charge whatever they want. Here's McGoy again. What these companies do is even if they offer a lower price to start with, they jack up their price later down the line. McGoy was able to help Rodriguez switch suppliers, and she now pays a much lower flat rate for power every month. But across the state, more than 500,000 households are currently enrolled in competitive supply plans. And Nathan Forster, who leads the Energy and Telecommunications Division at the Massachusetts Attorney General's office, says that for most people, they're not a good deal. Less than 10% of suppliers in a given year provide savings on average to customers. And when it happens, those savings are often very small. Like a couple dollars a month, and usually only while a low introductory rate lasts. By contrast, the average customer loses about $230 annually. And that adds up. New data from the AG's office shows that ratepayers in Massachusetts lost more than a half billion dollars between 2015 and 2021. And to be clear, this isn't just a Massachusetts problem. Forster says his counterparts in Maine, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Illinois, they see this too. You have, unfortunately, too many companies who have decided that they're going to try to make money through lies and deception. The attorney general's office gets frequent complaints about salespeople who lie about who they are or pressure people to sign up. And then there's something called slamming literally getting someone's account number and signing them up without their consent. Mariama White-Hammond is Boston's top energy official. The biggest thing that makes me frustrated about the competitive electric suppliers is that traditionally they have gone after the people who can least afford the predatory product that they're offering. She says these companies target people who don't speak English fluently, older adults, college students, and residents of low-income neighborhoods. But Frank Kaliva says this is a problem of a few bad apples. He's with the Retail Energy Supply Association, an industry group for competitive energy suppliers. And he thinks government oversight can solve the problem. We think customers should have the ability to shop. We just think additional safeguards and additional oversight and additional education are vital for a properly functioning market. But many consumer advocates disagree. They say it's not worth the time and money to police these companies. And they point out that even after other states have tried to rein in the industry, residents still lose money. State Representative Frank Moran of Lawrence says this market is beyond reform. And he's introduced legislation that would bar suppliers from signing up new residential customers, effectively phasing out the industry. I believe in free enterprise. But in this case, it's actually hurting customers. A similar bill was filed last year, but didn't quite make it over the finish line. Still, Moran and other advocates hope this legislative session will be different. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Tomorrow on WBUR's All Things Considered, some competitive suppliers say they'll bring you 100% renewable energy. But we'll tell you why it's not that simple.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From BritBox with Sister Boniface Mysteries, brilliant crime-solving nun Sister Boniface returns to solve curious cases in this Father Brown spinoff. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. From the United States Postal Service, reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America. USPS.com slash moving forward. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. More details are emerging about the shooter who killed eight people at a Texas mall on Saturday. Meanwhile, families and the community mourn the victims. Our community has just been hit. And it hurts, it hurts. It's Monday, May 8th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Title 42 expires this week. That's the federal policy that's allowed U.S. authorities to expel migrants at the border during a pandemic instead of allowing them to apply for asylum. And record producer Chris Strockwitz spent his life documenting and preserving American roots music. I felt it all had this kind of earthiness to it that I didn't hear in any other kind of music. Strockwitz died last week at the age of 91. We'll look back on his life and career. It's 5.01. Now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Even as the investigation continues into the latest mass shooting to hit the U.S., the deaths of eight people at a mall in Texas, the White House is condemning the violence. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre saying just over a third of the way into the year, more than 14,000 people have lost their lives to gun violence in the U.S. When we have 200 mass shootings in less than 130 days, more than one a day, this is a crisis. Congress must do something about it. Investigators in Texas say the man who opened fire in a mall near Dallas may have been motivated by right-wing extremism. The 33-year-old gunman armed with an AR-15-style assault weapon was shot and killed by police Saturday. Local authorities have identified the driver of the vehicle that crashed into a crowd of people yesterday outside a migrant shelter on the Texas-Mexico border. Texas Public Radio's Pablo de la Rosa reports eight people were killed. George Alvarez, who Brownsville Police Chief Felix Sauceda described as a, quote, local with an extensive rap sheet, has been charged with eight counts of manslaughter and ten counts of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. The SUV ran a red light, lost control, flipped on its side, and struck a total of 18 individuals. 
Authorities reiterated at a press conference that an investigation, now in cooperation with the FBI, is looking at the possibility that Alvarez committed a deliberate act. A bond has been set for Alvarez at $3.6 million. I'm Pablo de la Rosa in McAllen. Ukraine is facing a new round of attacks. Russia launched 36 drones targeting the capital, Kyiv. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports on the latest strikes. Ukraine's Air Force said it shot down all 35 drones above Kyiv. At least five people were injured from falling debris. The military says Russia also launched 16 missiles at other Ukrainian cities, including the southern city of Odessa. President Volodymyr Zelensky condemned Russia in a video released today as Europe observes the Allied defeat of Nazi Germany in 1945. He compared Vladimir Putin's Russia to Adolf Hitler's Germany. He said Ukraine will join Europe in observing May 8th as a defeat of fascism. Ukraine used to mark Victory Day on May 9th, the same day Russia celebrates the Soviet defeat of the Nazis. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Odessa. A jury heard closing arguments today from a lawyer for the advice columnist who contends former President Donald Trump raped her in a department store dressing room in 1996. Trump, who did not attend the trials, insisted the incident never happened. If found liable, Trump could be forced to pay monetary damages to Eugene Carroll. On Wall Street, the Dow was down 55 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. School bus drivers in Marlboro are on strike. Students were told to walk or get a ride to school. The city reopened traffic delays near schools during the afternoon pickup. Reported traffic delays, excuse me. Bus drivers are seeking higher wages from North Reading Transportation. The company reached a deal yesterday with unionized drivers in Framingham to avoid a strike there. Contract negotiations continue with bus drivers in Westboro. A Massachusetts biopharma company is set to lay off 186 employees this summer. The layoffs come after Takeda's decision to stop early-stage programs in gene therapy and rare blood disease research. It will instead focus on commercializing drugs that are closer to market. Takeda is the state's largest life sciences employer with over 6,200 employees. The Massachusetts Air National Guardsmen accused of leaking classified military documents online will be back in court Thursday. This will be 21-year-old Jack Teixeira's second hearing on whether he should remain jailed until his trial. The judge had taken the matter under advisement after the first hearing last month. Today, he ordered a new hearing for Thursday in Worcester Federal Court. City leaders in the region plan to require commitments from companies that want to develop public land to include women and people of color on various aspects of any project. Steve Crosby leads the Civic Action Project. That's the group that helped organize the regional agreement. He says municipalities will seek similar commitments and deals for privately owned land, but they will not mandate them. But by simply asking the question and by talking to developers on private land about the city's interest in diversity, equity and inclusion, we believe that that will have a significant impact on having developers become sensitive to these issues and act on them. Mayors and other leaders from Boston, Cambridge, Lynn, Salem, and Somerville are signing on to the so-called Commonwealth Development Compact in an effort to diversify real estate development in the region. Well, we'll have clear skies tonight and temps in the upper 40s. Tomorrow, another picturesque day, though not as warm. We'll have bright sun again, and the high will be around 60. Then Wednesday, sunny and a bit warmer with temps in the low 70s. It's 74 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. NPR has learned more about the man who used an assault-style rifle to kill eight people at a mall in Allen, Texas, on Saturday. He had been discharged from the Army for mental health reasons. KERA's Catherine Hobbs has been following the story and joins us from Dallas. Hi, Catherine. Hi there. There's been a lot of speculation on social media about the shooter and his background, but what have you been able to confirm? So far, I can tell you that Garcia, who was 33, entered the Army in June of 2008. He was terminated three months later without completing his initial entry training, and he wasn't assigned a specific job or a military occupational specialty. A Defense Department official has told NPR that Army staff quickly identified he was a problem. Now, we don't really know what that problem was, but the official did confirm for us that he was discharged for mental health reasons. Questions now remain about where and how he got the gun. Since the discharge was 2008, that means about 15 years have passed. What can you tell us about that passage of time since? What we've been able to confirm is that his most recent employment records show that he completed level two training in 2017 to work with Champion National Security as a security guard. That company is based in Arlington, another Dallas suburb. Um, We don't know if he actually worked as a security card, though, and we also know that his most recent address listed is a Dallas home. Catherine, you reported this morning that police might be looking into some of his beliefs that they may have played a role in the motive. What have you learned about his ideology, if any? So since then, I've been able to confirm with police that they do suspect his ideology might be linked to his motive. You know, of course, this is an ongoing investigation, but the evidence does suggest that Garcia held very far-right extremist beliefs. And at the time of his death, death, he was wearing a patch with the acronym RWDS, which stands for Right Wing Death Squad. Um, It's the same patch that was worn by Proud Boys member Jeremy Bertino, who pled guilty to seditious conspiracy during the January 6th siege at the Capitol. Um, However, we don't have any links um, showing that Garcia is directly related to the Proud Boys. His social media accounts, though, do express neo-Nazi and white supremacist views, and most of his victims were of Korean or Indian descent and also children. Officials are now interviewing his friends, family, neighbors, and anyone else who might have information to see what else we can learn about him. The people of Allen, Texas, are the latest community to have to cope with the aftermath of a mass shooting. What are you hearing from them? So I was at a vigil last night um, at the scene of the shooting, and I talked to like nine different people, and five of them told me that they wanted stricter gun laws so that the bad guys don't have access to guns. Others said they don't know what needs to be done, but that they want their elected officials to figure something out because these shootings are just keep happening. People I spoke with also said that there needs to be better access to mental health care. They're tired of the stigma surrounding asking for help, and they want to make sure that people are getting intervention before they reach this point. And if those are longer-term goals, then what kind of near-term things did they tell you might help them? They said that they want closure. They want to know what led the shooter to what they're calling a senseless act of violence. I spoke with Cesar Leo, who witnessed the shooting. Something in my heart just felt like to come back, say goodbye, or just then I'll pray for them. And I'll that to find strength. And last night, people were rallying around each other. There was a speaker there who asked how many people at the vigil had no personal connection to the victims, and more than half of the mourners raised their hands. So far, they set up a family assistance center um, in Allen. They're offering, count- offering counseling and other services. 
and schools have specialized counselors on campuses. Businesses are pitching in to help out. And when I was on the scene, a hotel kindly let me borrow their lobby and Wi-Fi to work out of. And during the couple hours that I was there, many people came in and offered to foot the bill for victims' families and witnesses who were staying there. That's KERA's Catherine Hobbs in Dallas. Thank you. Thank you. Let's turn now to events unfolding at the U.S.-Mexico border and whether the Biden administration has done enough to prepare for them. Title 42 ends this week. That's the pandemic border policy started under President Trump. It has continued under President Biden, with it now expiring. Migrants who've been waiting in Mexico for a chance to seek asylum are expected to try to cross. 1,500 U.S. troops have been sent to meet them and to send a message the border is not open. I want to bring in Andrea Flores. She was director of border management on the National Security Council under President Biden. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Mary Louise. So let's start with these active duty troops at the border, which I gather you are not a fan of. I saw that you tweeted, and I will quote, deploying military personnel suggests a concerning lack of readiness for this transition. DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, had over two years to plan a gradual wind down of Title 42. Instead, the situation has escalated into a greater emergency, end quote. Andrea Flores, explain. A greater emergency. Why? Sure. So anyone who works in border policy, migration policy, knows that sudden changes to our immigration policies at the border can trigger the movement of people in really extreme ways. And so what I mean by that is Title 42 was always a temporary authority. It was justified by public health reasons. The Biden administration from day one, we knew that Title 42 was going to come to an end and that it was going to be a difficult operational transition Uh to restore the normal border processing that, that we've always had. So what I am concerned about is you see, you know, the announcement that the troops are being deployed. You are seeing thousands of people already on the streets of communities like El Paso. You're hearing from shelter providers that they haven't been engaged on what this transition will look like until a few weeks ago. So I'm concerned that with all of this lead time, that this is becoming a far greater emergency than it ever needed to be. And that has really negative impacts on the migrants themselves who are going through this process, on border communities, on law enforcement, and also just on our national debate on immigration, which is already very heated and really difficult for people to understand where we are in this moment. So on the troops specifically, help me understand, they're there apparently to help with logistics, maybe help free up the border patrol to do other things. Is there actual harm from sending them if we are seeing, as you say, already thousands of people on the streets? You know, doesn't the U.S. need to send more people to help? I would say, do we need active duty troops? Not necessarily. I would recommend deploying more humanitarian personnel on the ground. So I could imagine FEMA, the Red Cross, additional humanitarian organizations. One of the issues with a very long history of administrations sending military troops is there's politics in that decision, right? And there's an imagery of the border as a dangerous space, that migrants are dangerous, that they need to be intimidated away from coming and seeking relief such as asylum. And so I get really nervous whenever I hear that troops are in border communities because it's very unlikely that they won't be interacting with migrants. It's very unlikely that they won't be interacting with U.S. citizens in those communities. I grew up along the border. 
I have seen and experienced when troops have been deployed. And I think it's a really startling thing for people in border communities to see. When you say you're worried that this has become or is becoming an emergency that it didn't need to be, I mean, what would you have liked to see the Biden administration do to handle this? I would have liked to see them phase out Title 42 far earlier to not see them formally try and end it till long after we had testing vaccines and other mechanisms in place to deal with the public health concerns. They really lost some time to build out a more orderly process for the people who have been waiting for two, three years to come and work, reunite with family or seek asylum. So what are you watching for? In these coming days, as Title 42 expires, what is the best case scenario? What is the worst case scenario? I think the best case scenario is that they've prepared in a way that will reduce burdens on the communities receiving migrants. So that could mean that they've thought through how to facilitate the transportation of people to different locations, that everyone is leaving Border Patrol custody with a court document or they're on an alternative to detention That is a sign of the system doing well. What I'm very nervous about, though, is, and, and, you know, we don't know everything about what happened in Brownsville yesterday. Brownsville, this is when the vehicle struck and killed people near a migrant shelter in Brownsville, Texas. Go on. But when you have people gathered outdoors, on the streets, I think that creates really serious safety risks, not only for the migrants themselves, but for communities. And I'm very nervous that we will continue to see and have people who are unhoused with nowhere to go, right, in these border communities. And in our current political climate, I get really nervous about the security risk that that creates for really everyone. Andrea Flores has held senior posts to do with immigration, both for Senator Bob Menendez, New Jersey Democrat, and on the Biden National Security Council. Thanks very much. Thank you again for having me. Elsewhere in the show today, the number of Black immigrants to the U.S. is on the rise. An NPR reporter spent months speaking with some of these so-called invisible immigrants in Tennessee. We'll hear their stories. Finally, the answer to a mystery that captured the attention of a small town in New Jersey and the Internet. Look down, seen alphabets, noodles, spaghetti. Probably about 200 pounds. That is Old Bridge Township resident Keith Roast talking to NBC4 New York. Roast was walking through the woods last week when he stumbled on piles and piles of pasta of unknown origin. The Department of Public Works eventually hauled it away. They had to carbo load it into 15 wheelbarrow trips to clear it all out. They called the job Mission Impossible. <laughs> of course they did. <laughs> As for who dumped the noodles, neighbors now seem to have an idea. Roast, who spoke to NBC4 New York, said he believes it was a man cleaning out a pantry. I mean, I really feel like he was just trying to clean out his parents' house, and they were probably just stocked up from COVID. They were just probably degeneration, like my grandpa parents always had a cupboard full of cans and pasta and, you know, just to be safe. Another neighbor told NPR that who did it wasn't the point. The township lacks bulk garbage pickup, which could have kept all that pasta out of the woods in the first place. It also could have been donated to a food bank. You're listening to All Pasta Considered from NPR News. 
And thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, a jury is expected to begin deliberating tomorrow in writer E. Jean Carroll's civil lawsuit accusing Donald Trump of raping her. We'll have a wrap-up of closing arguments, which happened today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, committed to helping homeowners reduce their carbon footprint and improve energy efficiency with heat pumps. GoEndlessEnergy.com or 775-ENDLESS. On Wall Street today, the Dow slipped 0.17 percent, the S&P picked up 0.05 percent, and the Nasdaq went up 0.18 percent. In local business news, the media company owned by Patriots quarterback Tom Brady, former quarterback Tom Brady, is setting up shop in Newton. The Boston Business Journal reports Shadow Lion will lease space in a renovated brick building on Chestnut Street starting this month. Brady launched the company in 2017. He retired from football this year. Shadow Lion has produced projects including Tom vs. Time, the television series about Brady's career. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MFS. Their active 360-degree approach combines long-term investing with actionable insights and resources. Visit mfs.com active360. And Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness. Located in Littleton, Mass., more at soaringhawkcenter.com. Well, if you're used to watching TV when and how you want, you can now do the same thing listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the WBUR app. Download it in the App Store today. Well, if you have liked the weather of the last few days, you can look forward to a lot more of it this week. Tonight will be mostly clear with a low in the upper 40s. Tomorrow, cooler around 60 degrees, but nice and sunny again. Then the sunshine continues Wednesday with temperatures on the rise to the low 70s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Black immigrants to the U.S. have been called the country's invisible immigrants. They often have unique circumstances that aren't always at the center of national discussions about immigration, and their numbers are on the rise. Today, one in 10 Black Americans was born outside the U.S. And for the first time, the greatest share of Black immigrants lives in the South. NPR's Leah Danella spent months speaking with members of Tennessee's Black immigrant communities about their journeys to the South and their accompanying triumphs and challenges. One of those challenges is getting from one place to another. Here's Leah. From the moment Edwin Musafiri arrived in the U.S., he said people had a lot of questions for him. From Africa, yeah. Africa, 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 yes. How is the food? You guys see giraffes. (laughs) Musafiri is from Lusaka, the capital of Zambia and a city of more than three million people. And in June of 2022, when he moved to Memphis, he said it wasn't all that different. It's 70% like the place I came from. There was one big difference, though. In Memphis, his movement was a lot more constrained because of one simple factor, transportation. To go to work, you know, buy stuff around, you need to drive. Musafiri didn't know how. 
And while that hadn't been a constraint for him before, in Memphis, it became a huge frustration. He had to call for a ride every time he wanted to do something simple, like go grocery shopping or run errands. And I had a job. Musafiri worked at Amazon first, then at DHL. But the job I really wanted, I needed a car. Musafiri is not alone. In many places, having a driver's license and access to a car determines a lot. What job you're able to hold, what time of day you can go out, and yes, when you can go grocery shopping. But for certain communities, the barriers to getting a driver's license are especially complex, even as the need is extraordinarily high. And Black immigrants face specific challenges that can make driving risky, but choosing not to drive economically and socially debilitating, especially in a city like Memphis. Now that's something that uh, I have firsthand experience in. That's Isaac James. James is the DEI officer at the nonprofit Refugee Empowerment Program. That job involves a lot of different roles, but one of the most surprising? Driver's ed teacher. Quick backstory, in 2014, there was a group of new refugee families connected to Refugee Empowerment Program. They all found jobs, but they didn't drive. But they found somebody that worked with them that would be able to take them there and bring them back, as long as they paid gas. Except this person wouldn't always show up at the end of the shift. That was the night shift, by the way. So when they would get done work at 3, 4, 5 in the morning... I would have to wake up to go get them. And that hurt me. Not the waking up part, he said. The fact that people in vulnerable situations were getting exploited. So eventually James made a decision. He was going to teach that family, and people like them, how to drive themselves. Because I was so infuriated by what I just saw. But James quickly realized that teaching people the driving itself, that would be the easy part. Because if you're driving a car, you don't need anybody else to tell you to turn left or to turn right. That becomes sort of second nature. The hard part? Everything else. While James' students focus on adjusting their mirrors, he's thinking about all the other stuff that goes along with getting behind the wheel. Like what to do if you get pulled over. How high stakes that interaction can be if you're black, or someone who doesn't speak English, or both. The language issue has been particularly sticky. The written portion of the Tennessee driver's test is offered in just five languages, compared to 10 or 21 in neighboring states. And in Tennessee, if you speak a language that's not on the list, your options are limited. According to the Migration Policy Institute, there are tens of thousands of Tennesseans who speak African languages not on the test, and more than 30,000 people speak Arabic. The Arabic-speaking community has been particularly vocal about their frustrations, which has created some political momentum. In 2022, a bill was introduced in Tennessee's state Senate to provide interpreters for non-English speakers trying to get a driver's license. But that bill failed, and it's unclear when there will be another. A bill isn't the only way to get a language added to the test. We reached out to the Tennessee Department of Transportation and the Tennessee Department of Safety and Homeland Security, and so far, neither has commented on which department is ultimately responsible for the decision to add new languages. So for now, the barriers remain. But for many, getting around without a car is just not feasible. Andrew Guthrie is a professor at the University of Memphis. He studies transportation, and he says... The degree of sort of transit inaccessibility in Memphis really is exceptional. For one thing, the city is incredibly spread out. For another, he says... Memphis Area Transit Authority is seriously underfunded. In 2019, their annual budget was about $59 million. And when you have that little money, um, it's very, very hard to get service on the street. For a lot of people, those transit issues turn into economic ones. In Memphis, as of 2012, 
Median income for people who relied on public transportation was less than half of that for people who drove to work. So what do people do? Guthrie says many limit where they go. Some folks walk and bike, which can be dangerous, and... There are actually fairly complex informal transportation networks um, that will spring up. Like what Musafiri was relying on in his early days, or what James was a part of. So the challenge for the communities we serve is, yes, the law says that I can't drive without a license, but the city and the society, society that I'm, I'm in... Um, doesn't provide me reliable transportation. And so I'm between a, a rock and a hard place, right? Here's Isaac James from Refugee Empowerment Program again. If I do drive, I have the possibility to retain work. Um, I could take myself to, to doctor appointments. Um, I could take my kids to school. But there is this threat of if I do get pulled over, right, what will the law do with me? That's a tough decision for anyone, but it hits certain communities differently. Driving without a license is a Class C misdemeanor in Tennessee. That means that for U.S. citizens, it can result in fines or jail time. For non-citizens, it could be used in justifications for removal. Nationally, Black Americans are 20% more likely to be pulled over by the police for traffic stops than white Americans, and Black immigrants are disproportionately likely to be deported because of contact with police which means that Black immigrants have a lot to keep in mind when weighing whether to get behind the wheel. It's a reality that became even more present for many in Memphis in January with the widely publicized death of Tyree Nichols. So yes, Isaac James wants to teach his students how to drive, but he doesn't want to sugarcoat the realities they may face. In those sessions, it's being honest and vulnerable. My goal is to equip people with the knowledge and the skill set to be able to handle the road, but I also need to prepare them for what the law might do. They are newcomers who want to contribute to making Memphis greater and better. Which brings us back to Musafiri. Over the summer, he became one of James's students, and he passed the test. So as soon as I got my car, I switched jobs. <laughs> Another big change? In September, Musafiri's parents and siblings joined him in Memphis. And he decided to give them driving lessons. He said his dad is pretty good. My elder brother is good too. Then the issue is with my, <laughs> my young sisters. <laughs> Musafiri says they still need a little work making turns. But at least he knows that they're moving in the right direction. Leah Danella, NPR News, Memphis. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, we'll take a look at the relationship between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy as the two prepare to meet tomorrow to discuss the debt ceiling. Well, it'll be clear tonight and a bit chilly. The low will be around 48 degrees. Tomorrow through Thursday look mostly sunny, just like today. Temps around 60 tomorrow, then rising to about 80 by Thursday. Right now it is 73 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. 
I'm Daryl C. Murphy, host of WBUR's news and culture podcast, The Common. My mom is the anchor of the family, and without her love and support, I don't know if I'd be the person I am today. I am forever grateful. This Mother's Day, show some gratitude to your mom with Winston Flowers from WBUR. You'll support local journalism that strengthens our community. Save 10% and choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Texas, police say the driver of an SUV that slammed into a Brownsville bus stop, killing more than a dozen people, has been charged with manslaughter as investigators tried to determine if the crash was intentional. It all happened outside a nearby migrant center. Here's Brownsville Police Chief Felix Salceda speaking to reporters this afternoon. Through the investigation, it was found that the SUV ran a red light, lost control, flipped on its side, and struck a total of 18 individuals. Police have charged 34-year-old George Alvarez of Brownsville with eight counts of manslaughter and 10 counts of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Authorities are still waiting on a toxicology report to determine if Alvarez was intoxicated. The victims were all male. Several were from Venezuela. Pandemic-era government funding is on the verge of expiring. NPR's Quill Lawrence tells us those who stand to take a direct hit include tens of thousands of military vets who've been relying on expanded housing assistance. During the pandemic, the government expanded funding to keep veterans from becoming homeless, to cover things like free rides to VA clinics, telehealth services for rural vets, and higher rates of assistance with rent. All of that funding is set to expire this Thursday, May 11th. Advocates have been warning about the deadline for weeks. It threatens the progress on veterans' homelessness made in recent years, says Catherine Monet, who leads the National Coalition for Homeless Veterans. We're in a situation and in a world where no veteran should be homeless and Congress needs to act. There's a bipartisan bill to extend the funding in the Senate, but it's not clear that would get through the Republican-controlled House. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street today ahead of new government reports on jobs and inflation later this week, while worries about the banking sector that dominated the markets last week have calmed a bit. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Massachusetts is one of about a dozen states where residents can choose who supplies their electricity. The default option is to have a utility like Eversource or National Grid do it. But people can also sign up with a private company that buys power on their behalf in the wholesale market. Many of those so-called competitive suppliers promise to provide savings. But as WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports, that rarely happens. When lawmakers set up the system in the late 90s, the hope was that more competition would lead to customers paying less for power. But the state attorney general's office has found that ratepayers with competitive suppliers lost over a half billion dollars during a six-year period. Nathan Forster leads the office's energy and telecommunications division. Suppliers will often sign customers up for a rate that provides short-term savings, but the contract eventually results in big losses Forster says suppliers also often use deceptive marketing tactics to enroll customers, and that lower-income residents, older adults, and people who don't speak English fluently are harmed the most. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser.
A private contractor will soon demolish part of a Newburyport pharmaceutical plant that was damaged by an explosion last week. The city's mayor and fire chief report officials plan to continue cleanup and emergency operations at the Sequence facility tomorrow. The city has given Sequence a deadline of 8 a.m. on Wednesday to start demolishing the building addition where the explosion happened. The blast killed one worker and sent four others to the hospital. The explosion's cause remains under investigation. State lawmakers are considering a proposal to create a separate agency to oversee public transit. Legislators discussed the bill from Democratic State Senator Michael Barrett at a Transportation Committee meeting today. Transit advocate Stacy Thompson with the Livable Streets Alliance says the idea stems from a federal review of the MBTA last year. The federal government was literally like, yo, you need some separation. You need some transparent oversight. So I think it's a really good crack at looking at that guidance, looking at examples from other states and trying to envision what that would look like in Massachusetts. The state has similar independent bodies, such as the Cannabis Control Commission. While the beautiful spring weather continues this week, tonight there will be just a few clouds in the moonlit sky. Temps will dip to the upper 40s. Tomorrow, sunny again, cooler than today with temps around 60. Right now it is 73 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. From Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from ECMC Foundation at ECMCFoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Attorneys in the E. Jean Carroll lawsuit against former President Donald Trump gave their closing arguments today. This after two weeks of testimony in which the former columnist accused Trump of raping her inside a department store changing room in the mid-1990s. And I want to warn you, this report includes graphic descriptions of an alleged rape. NPR's Andrea Bernstein was in the courtroom. And Andrea, I I know today was the final opportunity for attorneys to address jurors. So tell me what E. Jean Carroll's legal team put forward. There were two pillars to her lawyer's arguments. One, that 11 witnesses backed up parts of E. Jean Carroll's version of events. Under oath, Carroll described it this way. She said that Donald Trump steered her into a dressing room in the lingerie department of the Bergdorf Goodman's department store, pinned her with his shoulder, and grabbed her vagina with his fingers before pushing his penis inside her. But, she testified, she fought him off and immediately called a friend. On the stand, that friend backed up Carol's account, testifying she got the call while she was feeding her kids dinner. There was another corroborating witness, a former TV anchorwoman. There were store employees, and there were two other women who said they were assaulted in a similar way, and others who buttressed Carol's account. And even though Donald Trump didn't testify, Carol's lawyer, Roberta Kaplan, argued that to find Trump not liable, the jury would have to disregard all the witnesses and to believe that Trump himself was lying in the infamous Access Hollywood tape, which the jury saw, when he said he liked to grab women by the genitals because, quote, when you are a star, they let you do it. All right. So how did the defense handle all that? What did former President Trump's attorney say? So... 
His defense attorney and the former president deny anything at all happened. And attorney Joe Tacopina put forward another explanation that because of their hatred of Trump, Eugene Carroll and the other two women who testified that Carroll told them what happened back in the 1990s, concocted a story of rape. Takapina noted that Carol didn't specify a date for the alleged attack, that the two corroborating witnesses didn't discuss the events with Carol for over 20 years, that there was an email referencing a scheme and another one from the anchor woman, Carol Martin, to an unidentified party referring to something that, quote, never really happened. Takapina implied that Carol made up the story based on a 2012 Law and Order episode that discussed a rape in a Bergdorf's dressing room. On rebuttal, the plaintiff's attorney said all of that was taken out of context and that if Carol was lying, she would have done a better job ironing out inconsistencies and gaps in her story. Back to the point you made, Andrea, that, that Trump did not testify. How did attorneys for both sides address that? Trump's lawyer said the jurors should make no conclusions uh, about the fact they put on no witnesses and that, that he not, never even showed up in court because the plaintiffs didn't prove their case. But the plaintiffs really made hay out of Trump's lack of testimony. Michael Ferrara, another of Carol's lawyers, said jurors should conclude Trump didn't attend because it would have hurt his case. Looking straight at the jury, Ferrara said, quote, he never looked you in the eye and denied raping Eugene Carroll. And very briefly, this goes to the jury now? Yes, the jury will receive their instructions from the judge tomorrow and then begin deliberating. They'll have to decide whether the preponderance of the evidence finds Trump sexually assaulted Carol. It's not a criminal trial. There will be no guilty or not guilty finding. But if found liable for the first time, a jury of Trump's peers would have found they believed an accuser. Thanks, Andrea. Thank you. Coming up, finding sanctuary for hippos who are getting a little too comfortable in Colombia. But first, we're going to remember a record producer who played an outsized role in documenting and preserving American roots music. The musicologist Chris Strockwitz has died. The very first record he released contained the music of a Texas farmer named Mance Lipscomb. He recorded Lipscomb in the singer's kitchen in 1960, and that album kicked off a career that spanned six decades, recording and releasing blues, country, zydeco, and norteño music, among others. Strockwitz was born in Germany in 1931. He and his mother fled after World War II and relocated to Reno, Nevada. In 2013, he told NPR that as a teenager there, he didn't enjoy the popular American music of the time. I was subjected to what my classmates and the schoolmates were listening to, all the sappy, how much is that doggy in the window, barf, barf. Eventually, he found local stations that played hillbilly country and R&B. I felt it all had this kind of earthiness to it that I didn't hear in any other kind of music. They sang about, you know, how lonesome you are, and those songs really spoke to me, and the music did. He soon set off to record the music that evoked those feelings, describing his motivations in the 2013 documentary, This Ain't No Mouse Music. I couldn't sing or dance or snort or whatever, you know, but I wanted to have a... I thought it'd be fun to have my own label. And it was a time when everybody was starting small record companies. That label became Arhuli Records. Arhuli As for that name? I was thinking about 
words like Gulf Records or Delta Records or Southern or something like that, you know. And suddenly he said, how about our Hooli? I said, our what? <laughs> our Hooli. Well, it finally hit me and I figured, well, it's certainly unique. Nobody else is going to think of that word. And I asked him, well, what the heck did it mean? You know, it said in parentheses, a field hauler. A field hauler. I really need sloppy dog mama Struckwitz's recordings, like this one of Big Joe Williams playing on a nine-string guitar, influenced other musicians too, like the guitarist Ry Cooter. Because of that Big Joe Williams record and that particular song, it decided me, once and for all, I'm going to do this too. I'm going to get good on guitar, and I'm going to play it like that, and I'm going to make records, and that's what I'm going to do with my life. In the 1970s, Strachwitz began to record Mexican groups from the borderlands, like Los Pinguinos del Norte. He told NPR's Alt Latino podcast in 2019 that he first heard Mexican music shortly after he arrived in the United States. I was just enamored by it, but it really developed more and more as I, of course, spent time in areas where you had this music popping out, you know, even in college, I remember going to hear mariachis in some places or hearing uh, stuff on the jukeboxes in, in Mexican cantinas and so on. And uh, it grew on me. I became absolutely fascinated by it. That fascination drove him to amass the world's largest private collection of Mexican and Mexican-American music, old shellac records and 45s, with songs by artists like Los Madrugadores from Depression-era California. Chris Strockwitz died on Friday. He was 91. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Tomorrow afternoon, President Biden will sit down with congressional leaders to negotiate what to do about the nation's debts. A quick recap of all this, the U.S. is slated to run out of money to pay its bills around the end of this month. Congress needs to extend the debt ceiling in order to keep the payments going. Republicans say they will not do that, not without also approving spending cuts. Well, Biden will meet with the top Democrats and Republicans from both chambers. But really, this is a negotiation between Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. NPR's Scott Detrow joins us from the White House to talk about how these two men are approaching the meeting. Hey, Scott. Hey, good afternoon. So fair to say Biden and McCarthy are, are dug in, to use a technical <laughs> term. <laughs> Remind us of the stance that they're dug in on. Well, I think I could have given you this exact answer on their stances back in January <laughs> to, 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 to put a sense of how dug in they are. Biden says he won't negotiate at all to the point where today Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre was correcting reporters in the White House briefing who called tomorrow's meeting a negotiation. She said, no, it's a meeting. Biden is demanding that Congress raise the debt ceiling without conditions. He points out that's something Republicans were happy to do when Donald Trump was president. As for McCarthy, he says he will not raise the debt ceiling without also passing spending cuts. 
The House recently passed a bill doing just that, and that's been the state of things all year. But now the deadline is weeks away, so they're going to have a meeting. Yeah. So what are we actually expecting from this meeting? Like, Are they actually likely to deal with each other once they're in the same room? That is a very good question. We did just learn that reporters will be allowed into the very top of the meeting, which was an open question. So we'll have a sense of how they're sizing each other up. You know, if you take a step back and look at Biden and McCarthy's relationship with each other, it's interesting because these are two political lifers. They're people who value personal relationships, getting to know other key figures, and yet they really have hardly any relationship at all. This is just the second Oval Office meeting since McCarthy became speaker. Here's Biden talking about McCarthy the other day during an MSNBC interview. I think he's an honest man. I think he's in a position, though, he had to make a deal that was pretty, you know, 15 votes, (laughs) 15 votes that uh, where he uh, just about sold away everything that he at the far, far right. So, so that's a reference to how many rounds of voting it took for McCarthy to be speaker. And yeah. Think about this compliment for a second, Mary Louise. He's a really good guy who just had to sell out in order to maintain, maintain power. I don't know if I would want that compliment from someone. No, it's not the most promising as they sit down to talk tomorrow. What about McCarthy? What is, what is he saying about Biden's role? He's been focused on the fact that up until this meeting, Biden has been refusing to have a serious conversation about the debt ceiling. President Biden has a choice. Come to the table and stop playing partisan political games. Or cover his ears, refuse to negotiate, and risk bumbling his way into the first default in our nation's history. And I think the White House would counter that that Biden is taking this seriously. He's just making it clear he's not going to start negotiating. But I think this line of argument has been gaining some traction, and I think that's one reason why uh, Biden and McCarthy will be sitting down in the same room tomorrow. 30 seconds, Scott, for you to tell me who else in that room you're going to be watching. One person to watch is Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. He is of note because in 2011, he and then Vice President Biden uh, cut a deal with each other to stave off a debt ceiling crisis that was very similar to this one now. So might they do it again? Both of them are saying they have no plans to. McConnell is yielding to McCarthy. And Biden, as we've been saying, is saying, I'm not going to negotiate. So we'll see. And PR's Scott Detrow at the White House. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for starting your evening with us here on WBUR. Coming up just after the top of the hour, the federal government plans to propose new rules that would compensate airline passengers for certain flight delays and cancellations beyond just a refund. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at vrtx.com. Listen to Violation, a new podcast from WBUR in partnership with The Marshall Project. It's a story about two families and an unthinkable crime that's bound them together for decades. You can find Violation wherever you get your podcasts. We'll have clear skies tonight and temps in the upper 40s. Tomorrow, another picturesque day, though not as warm. We'll have bright sun again, and the high will be around 60. Wednesday will be sunny and a bit warmer with temps in the low 70s. Then the sun will stick around Thursday with a high around 80. It's 73 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jeff Cohen, WBUR's managing producer for local news. My mother's name was Judy. She died seven years ago. One of the things I miss most about her is her voice. Luckily, she called me every day, and she left me lots of messages. 
to tell me she was proud. So excited. Call us when you have time. Or mad. You have time to play on Facebook, but you won't answer your mother's phone call. And the obvious. I love you. Kiss the girls. Don't make them cry. Bye. Mom had no idea how much these voicemails would mean. Little gifts that she left me for later, like a letter lost in the mail that suddenly delivered. They're bits of audio and love that remind me of the power of both. If you love the power of radio and you're looking to celebrate your mom or anyone else this Mother's Day, consider sending Winston Flowers from WBUR. You'll be supporting storytelling and the power of the human voice. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org and thanks. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Nearly three-quarters of farm workers in the United States are immigrants. That means immigration issues and the agricultural industry are closely intertwined. NPR's Jimena Bustillo spoke to farmers in Arizona about their labor force needs. Next to a flea market in Yuma, Arizona, there's a cluster of white tents and antennas. It looks like a drab traveling circus but it's actually a facility to process immigrants. Those are all (laughs) makeshift tents that have been brought in to house and handle the influx here that we've had in the last couple of years. This, this all, all these tents and all that were never out here before. That's Craig Alameda. He's a farmer with operations in California and Arizona near the Mexican border. But now because of uh, the border situation, This is what they've had to build up and they're trying to make do with what they got. Driving past the tents, it's clear that immigration issues loom largest for border towns like Yuma. They're especially stark for farmers like Alameda, who rely on migrant labor for their own livelihoods and have for decades. Now Alameda said he's one of the largest H-2A employers in the country. That's the visa program for seasonal agriculture workers. And many more migrant workers from Mexico commute across the border every day. But relying on a foreign demographic means farmers are at the mercy of a complicated immigration system. And many farmers say more needs to be done to provide access to visas and workers. Nothing's been passed. No one's done anything on the labor situation. Labor advocates like Antonio de la Brust with United Farm Workers want to see a pathway to citizenship for farm workers first, before the program is expanded. The agricultural workers who are here, who have been uh, securing our domestic food supply for decades, deserve a pathway to citizenship. If you feed America, you deserve the right to stay in America and to become an American. Congress has failed to move forward on substantial immigration reform for decades. Often the conversation around immigration focuses on illegal border crossings. But for farmers like Alameda, reform is much more about preserving a dedicated workforce. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Phoenix. The late Colombian drug lord Pablo Escobar had a taste for the exotic. He famously stocked his private zoo with giraffes, zebras, and hippopotamuses. And some of those African hippos escaped into the wilds of Colombia. Now they're breeding, crowding out native species, and on occasion, attacking people. So Colombian officials are considering a plan to airlift the hippos out of the country. Reporter John Otis has more. In the steamy wetlands of northwest Colombia, we spot a group of seven hippos in a lagoon. In Africa, hippos charge out of the water to kill hundreds of people every year. So we keep our distance. So the hippos are definitely keeping track of where we are. Anytime we walk towards one end of the lake or the other, 
they sort of swim towards us to make sure we don't get too close. A few people have gotten too close. On the nearby Magdalena River, Alvaro Molina recalls colliding with a hippo while out fishing. On impact, he was thrown into the river, his canoe filled with water, and his motor sank. But Molina managed to swim to shore. It was like a giant pig, he says. Colombia's hippo population now tops 140. That's a huge expansion from the original four hippos illegally brought into Colombia by Pablo Escobar in 1980. After the drug lord was killed, some of the animals escaped into the Magdalena, where they've colonized a 120-mile stretch of the river. They weigh up to 9,000 pounds, eat tons of swamp grass, and displace manatees, otters, and capybaras. Last year, Carlos Correa, who was then Colombia's environment minister, blacklisted hippos as an invasive species. Los hipopótamos son una especie invasora altamente peligrosa. They're highly dangerous and territorial, he told a news conference. We are calling on people to be very careful. These are not pets. They can do a lot of damage. But efforts to reduce their numbers have floundered. Hunting is seen by many experts as the most practical solution. But after a sharpshooter killed one of the hippos, upsetting animal rights activists, a Colombian judge banned the practice. Government veterinarians like Cristina Buitrago have castrated about a dozen hippos. But the animals must first be trapped, then put down with sedative-filled darts. The surgery requires six medics, takes five hours, and costs $17,000. That's why, Buitrago says, I don't think sterilization is the solution. Ernesto Sasueta, who runs an animal sanctuary in Mexico, thinks he does have the solution. During a recent trip to Colombia, Sasueta flew over the Magdalena River in a helicopter for an aerial view of the hippos. Back on the ground, he explained his plan. Sasueta says he wants to ship 60 of the hippos to an animal sanctuary in India and 10 more to his facility in Mexico. This would require catching the hippos, building special cages, then loading them aboard aircraft. Obviously, the plan is a little crazy, he says, and it's expensive. Each flight will cost $1 million. Another problem is that it would only remove about half of the hippos. Still, Colombian officials have signed on to the plan, as long as private donors pick up the tab. Indeed, the country has to do something. The hippos now feel so at home in Colombia that they wander through riverside neighborhoods and across highways causing accidents. Some congregate near this school, located next to Pablo Escobar's old estate. When her students left class a few weeks ago, says teacher Yorlin Cuesta, the hippos were out there on the road. It's scary. People are very afraid of them. Two Colombians have been mauled by hippos, including a farm worker who was hospitalized for a month with a broken leg, collarbone and ribs. 
Julian Cadavid, who owns the farm, describes what happened. The hippo threw him in the air and opened his mouth, Cadavid says. He played with him like a ball. There have been no fatal hippo attacks here, but Colombia's luck could run out. Scientists predict that unless radical steps are taken to cull the herd, by 2040, the country's hippo population could top 1,500. For NPR News, I'm John Otis on the Magdalena River, Colombia. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. Ahead on All Things Considered, some lawyers are raising questions about the authenticity of evidence by bringing up the doubt created from artificial intelligence-created images and videos. We'll have clear skies and temps in the upper 40s tonight. Right now, it's 73 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Biden administration is set to propose new federal rules requiring airlines to do more than just rebook flights or offer a refund when there are flight delays and cancellations within their control. They might have to pay people compensation. It's Monday, May 8th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Choice was supposed to save people money on their electric bills, but state data show a system that's been around for decades in Massachusetts has cost customers more. What these companies do is even if they offer a lower price to start with, they jack up their price later down the line. Coming up on Marketplace, hospitals struggling to keep up with inflation and rising interest rates. When you think about the ongoing capital needs of we need a new MRI or we need a new building, obviously that raises the cost that the health system is going to have to pay for that. It's 6.01. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. 
As the summer travel season approaches, the Biden administration is putting more pressure on big airlines to compensate customers for preventable delays. NPR Scott Horsley has more from the White House. Extreme weather, overstretched staffing and scheduling, and at times crippling computer problems have led to several high-profile widespread airline cancellations during the time Biden has been in office. Biden, along with Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, is urging airlines to standardize broader compensation for cancellations, including hotel and meal costs. You deserve more than just being getting the price of your ticket. You deserve to be fully compensated. Your time matters. Impact on your life matters. The administration will propose new federal rules, but those would take time to go into effect. Scott Detrow, NPR News, the White House. With an end to the pandemic-era health order known as Title 42 Thursday, over $38 million will be allocated to San Antonio organizations that provide humanitarian aid to migrant families. Texas Public Radio's Marion Navarro has more. Texas Congressman Joaquin Castro and Greg Casar announced the funds will be used to help provide shelter and food to the large number of migrants anticipated when Title 42 ends. The majority of funds, which come from the Federal Emergency Management Agency, will be distributed to Catholic Charities of San Antonio, which helps operate the city's Migrant Resource Center. The center is often the first destination for many migrants who seek asylum at the Texas-Mexico border. More than 12,000 migrants passed through the Migrant Resource Center last month alone. That number is expected to increase in the coming days. I'm Maria Navarro in San Antonio. A prominent House Republican is threatening to hold Secretary of State Antony Blinken in contempt of Congress if he does not hand over a classified cable about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. More from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. The chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee says the State Department has until Thursday to comply with his subpoena. Michael McCall wants to see a dissent cable that State Department officials in Kabul sent to Blinken in 2021. State Department spokesman Vedant Patel says the committee has already received a classified briefing on the cable as well as a written summary. The department says it wants to protect the dissent channel, which is meant for diplomats to raise objections to U.S. policy privately and directly with the Secretary of State. McCall accuses the department of withholding information about the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. As President Biden prepares to meet this week with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to discuss raising the debt ceiling, a number of options are on the table. Lawmakers could strike a deal to raise the debt limit in exchange for spending cuts, agree to stopgap measures to keep paying the country's bills, or do nothing, potentially sending the economy into a tailspin. On Wall Street today, the Dow is down 55 points. This is NPR. Today marks the 78th anniversary of the liberation of Europe from the Nazis. NPR's owner Beardsley reports Victory Day ceremonies are taking place for the second year amidst the return of war to the European continent. As an army choir sang France's hymn of the partisans, like every year, President Emmanuel Macron later reset the tomb of the unknown soldier under the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. For decades, such ceremonies paid tribute to those who lost their lives in a conflict whose horrors seemed all but impossible in the modern era. Macron and other European leaders long used VE Day ceremonies to herald the success of the European Union and nearly a century of peace on the continent. 
Today, they are forced to admit an end to that peace because war has returned. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. Probes into former President Donald Trump's handling of confidential documents has picked up steam in recent weeks, with prosecutors summoning a range of witnesses before a Gretel grand jury to look at whether Trump or his allies sought to obstruct government efforts to recover records. Probes have intensified in both Washington and Atlanta. It's not clear how many or any of the results could affect Trump's efforts to become his party's frontrunner in the 2024 presidential race. There are some issues both Democrats and Republicans agree on, and one apparently is whether there's enough regulation of the tech sector. However, while both sides appear to believe regulation is the way to go, there's less agreement on how to get there. Calls for increased regulation of tech have been driven in part by Chinese-owned companies like TikTok that have raised privacy issues. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News in Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Massachusetts state leaders don't appear to be too worried about anemic revenue figures for the month of April. The downturn comes as the legislature is in the process of crafting a state budget and a tax relief package. More now from WBUR's Steve Brown. April numbers show the state to be in the red by more than $700 million this fiscal year. But House Speaker Ron Mariano says leaders have anticipated a downslope in the economy. and That's why the House spread some of their proposed $1 billion in permanent tax cuts over two years. If you look at the inflation rate that seemed to be no one was able to take, figure out or take control over. And uh, so we wanted to be prudent and we think we were. Senate President Karen Spilka says her chamber remains committed to passing permanent progressive tax relief that is smart and sustainable, but held off predicting a total dollar amount. She says she'll leave that up to the full Senate membership. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. School bus drivers in Marlboro are on strike. They're seeking higher pay from their company, North Reading Transportation. The first day of the strike led to local traffic congestion and parent frustration in Marlboro. Some parents say today's pickup procedures were also unclear. WBUR's Carrie Young has more. About 3,800 kids in Marlboro ride school buses to class each day. With the bus driver's strike, the district was only able to provide transportation to a fraction of those students. Elise Heisey walked to and from her second grader's school building. She says while the 40-minute trip complicated her work schedule, she was happy to see extra school staff directing traffic. Actually, that was really lovely this morning. Every intersection of the major road had a crossing guard set up, so that was really nice. City leaders say school attendance was 10 to 15 percent lower than normal. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Christmas tree shops has confirmed two stores in New England will be closing out of 10 closing nationwide. The two locations are both in Cape Cod and Falmouth and Sagamore. The Sagamore location right at the edge of the Sagamore Bridge features an iconic windmill. The retail chain announced the closures last week as it filed for bankruptcy protection. A Woburn cop accused of helping plan a white supremacist rally has been decertified. John Donnelly is the first Massachusetts officer to be decertified under the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act of 2020. Donnelly is accused of helping plan a 2017 white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. He entered a voluntary agreement with the state last month. 
Well, if you have liked the weather of the last few days, you can look forward to a lot more of it this week. Tonight will be mostly clear with a low in the upper 40s. Tomorrow will be a bit cooler, around 60 degrees, but nice and sunny again. The sunshine continues Wednesday with temperatures on the rise to the low 70s. Thursday looks sunny again with temps around 80 degrees. Right now, it's 73 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. If you have any upcoming travel plans that involve an airplane, you may be holding your breath as you think of all the recent flight delays and cancellations. Millions of Americans have gotten stuck in airports over the past year, and many of them got little or no compensation. Today, President Biden and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg proposed new rules that would require airlines to compensate passengers beyond a ticket refund for what are being called significant controllable delays or cancellations. I spoke with Buttigieg earlier today and asked him about these proposed changes. Under these new rules, what could passengers get in the future that they're not getting now if their flight is delayed or canceled? Well, right now, if your flight gets canceled, you're entitled to a refund of the airfare. But there's nothing requiring airlines to compensate you for uh, the inconvenience and uh, other costs associated with having a major delay or a cancellation that is the fault of the airline. We're proposing requirements that would change that. Uh, This could mean compensation in addition to amenities or refunds for the ticket itself, could include uh, further accommodations if you're uh, delayed or or stuck, and uh, requirements around customer service. We've also launched an expanded dashboard at flightrights.gov. This is helping you get a sense of what you can expect from airlines right now, even as we're working to raise the bar on what's going to be required in the future. So going back to compensation, could this mean if you have to get your own hotel, pay for a meal, get a cab or an Uber or Lyft, these could be charged to the airline? That's right. Now, I'll say that we've already seen a number of gains in this regard compared to about a year ago uh, when there were no formal or enforceable agreements around that. We've uh, uh, posted that dashboard and with that transparency uh, came more motivation for airlines to do the right thing. So a number of them have filed customer service plans with us saying that they'll at least take care of a meal or ground transportation uh, or rebooking and we can enforce that. But that's still only based on them making a commitment to do that. We think that the right way forward is to establish requirements across the board so that any passenger flying on an airline in the U.S. knows what they can expect and and knows that the airline can't uh, change the rules on them. Could a passenger get cash, some kind of currency beyond the fare refund? Well, that's exactly what we are uh, uh, looking at proposing here. Uh, Look, there are uh, places where this is already routine. In Europe, in Canada, there are rules where uh, uh, if you get severely delayed and it's the airline's fault, you get some kind of cash compensation. Uh, That's the kind of thing that there's been a lot of interest in here in the U.S. and uh, exactly what we want this rule to look at. I assume some airlines count on passengers not knowing their rights, so they might not offer passengers compensation unless the passenger specifically asks for it. Under your new rules, will passengers automatically get compensated or they have to take the initiative? 
Well, that's part of something that we're uh, working to develop with this rule, which would be new. But I, I think that is a, a concern. Often we see that airlines will uh, start out by saying, well, uh, well, we'll give you uh, a few thousand miles. And uh, passengers might not know that, uh, you know, that could only be worth maybe 10 or 20 bucks, when in fact they're entitled to hundreds right. uh, if they ask for it. Uh, we want to make that easier. We don't want you to have to fight for it. And that's what this dashboard is about. Uh, we want to make sure that if, if you're getting ready to book a ticket, uh, you know which airlines are going to take care of you in which ways. And after you get that ticket, uh, you know how to, uh, uh, how to assert your rights. And I think making more of that automatic is an important part of that. It shouldn't be on you to navigate uh, DOT rules or go through the fine print of customer service uh, agreements in order to get what you are owed as a passenger. The airlines have blamed some of these problems on things like staffing shortages, technology outages, of course, weather. But they've also blamed the FAA for staffing and technical issues. That's an agency under your purview. What have you done, if anything, to try to make improvements to the FAA's operations? Well, even the airline's own industry statistics show that FAA issues and air traffic control is not responsible for most of these delays. But uh, anytime we see an indication that it could be, that's something that's a real concern. And it's why we have been acting both to modernize FAA systems and to hire more air traffic controllers, bringing on 1,500 additional controllers this year. And uh, the president's budget for fiscal year 24 proposes resources to bring in another 1,800 controllers. I do have to say, though, uh, in the midst of this uh, negotiation over the budget, uh, that uh, what House Republicans passed a few days ago would really stop us in our tracks and would actually reduce our ability uh, to staff these air traffic control towers, lead to furloughs at the FAA, even shut some towers down at the exact moment when it's abundantly clear that we need to do more, not less, to support our air traffic control system. I'm sure you've heard this term revenge travel, people who weren't able to travel during the pandemic making up for lost time. And even more Americans are expected to travel this summer than last summer. How soon do you think people can expect any notable change in that travel experience? Well, last year when we put up the first version of this consumer protection dashboard, we went from none of the airlines formally offering commitments around things like uh, vouchers and, and, and rebooking uh, to almost all of them doing it. We saw that change in a matter of days. So we do see that when they have the right incentives, uh, they can respond quickly. But uh, let, let's be honest here. The system is under a lot of pressure, the entire system. So far this year, performance has been better. The preliminary data show each month's so far this year, cancellation rates below 2%. Uh, that is great news, but we're not out of the woods. It's going to take more work to make sure that there is a good travel summer for passengers and that uh, we're on a good trajectory for the long-term future. Even before the pandemic, many passengers just felt poorly treated by airlines. What does it say to you that it's taken you to push them to try to get this kind of basic customer service? Well, I think uh, at the end of the day, we need to make sure it, through public policy that uh, these companies, airlines, have the right rules and the right incentive to do the right thing instead of just hoping that they'll do it on their own. Now, I will say not all airlines are alike. You can go to our website and see green check marks and red X's airline by airline uh, in terms of what they're going to offer. You know, before COVID, uh, an extraordinary amount of money went to stock buybacks at these airlines. Uh, we're looking to them to invest in their systems, invest in passengers, uh, and where they're not doing the right thing on their own, we're going to continue to use uh, a three-legged stool, uh, enforcement, rules, and transparency uh, to continue pushing things in the right direction. 
Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. In 2016, Elon Musk went on stage at a tech conference and made a bold statement about the self-driving capability of Teslas. Like a Model S and Model X at this point uh, can drive autonomously with greater safety than a person right now. Okay, but now his lawyers are suggesting he might not have said that at all, that it could be a deep fake created by artificial intelligence. NPR's Shannon Bond has more on an emerging challenge for courtrooms and society. The video of Elon Musk at that tech conference has been up on YouTube for nearly seven years. Elon, let me start by saying we're very glad you're here safe and sound. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Uh, of course, I had to... It recently came back in the spotlight as part of a lawsuit brought by the family of a man who died when his Tesla crashed while using the self-driving feature. Tesla's lawyers pushed back. They said Musk is a public figure and therefore a target for deepfakes, audio and video showing him saying things he never did. The judge did not buy it. She said the claim was, quote, deeply troubling and ordered Musk to testify under oath. The episode highlights a risk that's on the minds of many people closely following AI, that as the technology becomes more prevalent, it will become easier to claim that anything is fake. Hani Farid is a digital forensics expert at the University of California, Berkeley. I mean, that's exactly what we were concerned about, that when we enter this age of deep fakes, Anybody can deny reality, and that is the classic liar's dividend. The liar's dividend is a term coined by law professors Bobby Chesney and Danielle Citrin. The idea is, as people become more aware of how easy it is to fake audio and video, bad actors can weaponize that skepticism. All you have to do is cast doubt, right? You don't even have to prove it. You just you, you cast this doubt over it. And because we see so much fake content, you can see why that argument would get traction. Musk's legal team isn't the first to suggest that evidence against their client might have been faked using artificial intelligence. Two of the defendants on trial for the January 6th riot tried to claim video showing them at the Capitol could have been deepfakes. Ultimately, both men were found guilty. So far, those seem to have been Hail Mary passes that have not succeeded. Rihanna Pfefferkorn is a researcher at the Stanford Internet Observatory. She says the threat that deepfakes could be offered as evidence is real. But the legal system's existing rules are robust. The courts have built up hundreds of years of resilience against efforts to introduce fake or tampered with evidence, going all the way back to uh, faking somebody's signature on a handwritten document. When it comes to the flip side, suggesting real evidence is fake, ethics rules and lawyers' professional norms have a role to play. But these standards may need to be updated to specifically address what Loyola Law School professor Rebecca Delfino calls the deepfake defense. Right now, it's sort of like the wild, wild west. Well, let's run this up the flagpole and see see what we can do with it. Even as courts adapt to these challenges, the reverberations from AI fakes will still be felt. If accusations that evidence is deepfaked become more common, juries may come to expect even more proof that evidence is real, running up costs that could shut out people who don't have the resources to hire experts. And whether inside or outside the courtroom, denying that real events actually occurred has corrosive effects, says Hani Farid. Police violence, human rights violations, a politician saying something inappropriate or illegal, suddenly there's no more reality. And that is really worrisome because I don't know how we reason about the world. Today, most of us have in our pockets devices that can record what's happening around us at a moment's notice. 
What happens when we no longer believe what they see? Shannon Bond, NPR News. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Angie. Angie's list is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well, from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Start your day here tomorrow morning. Anti-vaccine activists are building a legal movement to bring vaccine-related cases to court. That story, more on ethics at the Supreme Court, and Tom Hanks on his new book. Wake up to host Rupa Shanoi here at 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Catchlight Painting committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at catchlightpainting.com. Today on Wall Street, the Dow dipped 0.17 percent, the S&P inched up 0.05 percent, and the Nasdaq gained 0.18 percent. In local business news, average gas prices in Massachusetts are falling. The statewide average for a gallon of gas is $3.46. That's down three cents in the past week, but it's still 13 cents higher than a month ago. AAA says the drop this week is due to a volatile oil market and a dip in travel demand that typically occurs before summer arrives. This is WBUR. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Well, we can expect lots more gorgeous in the weather department this week. Tonight will be clear with a low in the upper 40s. Tomorrow, sunny again, a little cooler with temps around 60. Then Wednesday and Thursday, lots of sunshine. We'll see temperatures on the rise again. The high Wednesday will be in the low 70s, around 80 on Thursday. Right now, it's 72 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. I'm WBUR reporter Simon Rios. My mom gave me my love for language, a sense of curiosity, and ideals like patience and open-mindedness. This Mother's Day, thank your mom with beautiful Winston flowers and send them through WBUR to support and strengthen journalism that feeds your curiosity. Choose your perfect gift and save 10% at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. In Massachusetts, people can choose to buy their electricity from their utility or from a third party known as a competitive supplier. When lawmakers set up this system in the late 90s, the assumption was that a competitive marketplace would result in lower prices for customers. But for the most part, the opposite has happened, and state data show low-income residents are harmed the most. WBUR's Miriam Wasser has our story. Have you ever had someone knock on your door and ask to see your electric bill? They probably told you that you're paying too much and that they have a plan that will give you cheaper power. This happened to Noemi Rodriguez of East Boston a few years ago. Some folks came along offering a plan that was supposedly from the state. She remembers feeling like the $80 a month she was paying Eversource was too much. And one of the salesmen spoke Spanish, so she felt like she could trust him. I thought this was going to benefit me. I was so ignorant. Rodriguez signed a contract, and her bill did go down at first. 
the problems didn't start until someone from the company called her about renewing her plan. She says she declined. She had seen something on the news about these companies increasing prices unexpectedly. The salesperson on the phone said he'd cancel her plan. But that's not what happened. That's when I started noticing that the bills were too much. It's not entirely clear how, but she ended up paying really high and variable rates. At times, her electric bill was over $200 a month. Last fall, Rodriguez asked a colleague at the environmental nonprofit Greenroots to take a look at her bills. Devin McGoy noticed right away that she had a competitive supplier. And he saw that some months, Rodriguez was paying three times more for electricity than she needed to. I see this problem all the time because energy bills are frankly really hard to decipher. Electric bills are confusing. And it's easy to miss the fact that you have a competitive supplier because your bill still comes from your utility. Here's how this all works. Your utility typically charges you for two services, the power it buys on your behalf in the wholesale market and the cost of maintaining the wires that bring electricity to your home. If you have a competitive supplier, the only thing that changes is that you have a private company buying electricity for you. You still write your utility one check a month, and it pays your supplier what it's owed. There is one major difference, though. Unlike utilities, competitive suppliers don't need to get their rates approved by the state so they can charge whatever they want. Here's McGoy again. What these companies do is even if they offer a lower price to start with, they jack up their price later down the line. McGoy was able to help Rodriguez switch suppliers, and she now pays a much lower flat rate for power every month. But across the state, more than 500,000 households are currently enrolled in competitive supply plans. And Nathan Forster, who leads the Energy and Telecommunications Division at the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office, says that for most people, they're not a good deal. Less than 10% of suppliers in a given year provide savings on average to customers. And when it happens, those savings are often very small. Like a couple dollars a month, and usually only while a low introductory rate lasts. By contrast, the average customer loses about $230 annually. And that adds up. New data from the AG's office shows that ratepayers in Massachusetts lost more than a half billion dollars between 2015 and 2021. And to be clear, this isn't just a Massachusetts problem. Forster says his counterparts in Maine, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Illinois, they see this too. You have, unfortunately, too many companies who have decided that they're going to try to make money through lies and deception. The attorney general's office gets frequent complaints about salespeople who lie about who they are or pressure people to sign up. And then there's something called slamming, literally getting someone's account number and signing them up without their consent. Mariama White-Hammond is Boston's top energy official. The biggest thing that makes me frustrated about the competitive electric suppliers is that traditionally they have gone after the people who can least afford the predatory product that they're offering. She says these companies target people who don't speak English fluently, older adults, college students, and residents of low-income neighborhoods. But Frank Kaliva says this is a problem of a few bad apples. He's with the Retail Energy Supply Association, an industry group for competitive energy suppliers. And he thinks government oversight can solve the problem. We think customers should have the ability to shop. We just think additional safeguards and additional oversight and additional education are vital for a properly functioning market. But many consumer advocates disagree. They say it's not worth the time and money to police these companies. 
And they point out that even after other states have tried to rein in the industry, residents still lose money. State Representative Frank Moran of Lawrence says this market is beyond reform. And he's introduced legislation that would bar suppliers from signing up new residential customers, effectively phasing out the industry. I believe in free enterprise. But in this case, it's actually hurting customers. A similar bill was filed last year, but didn't quite make it over the finish line. Still, Moran and other advocates hope this legislative session will be different. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Tomorrow on WBUR's All Things Considered, some competitive suppliers say they'll bring you 100% renewable energy. But we'll tell you why it's not that simple. Coming up at 7 on On Point, NPR's Mary Louise Kelly has reported from around the world. In her new book, she looks back on the choices she made as reporter and as a mom. A conversation with Mary Louise Kelly at 7 here on 90.9 FM and the WBUR app. Well, it'll be clear tonight with temps in the upper 40s. Tomorrow through Thursday look mostly sunny. Temps around 60 degrees tomorrow, then rising to the low 70s Wednesday, 80 on Thursday. This is 90.9 WBUR. Marketplace is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, empower a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And Circle Furniture, sourced in New England and focused on combining design with handmade craftsmanship. More about their sustainably crafted furniture at circlefurniture.com.